You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Monday, June 13th, 2011, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Buonotte. Buonanotte, is that what you're trying to say? Yeah, is that? I didn't know you spoke close. I didn't know you spoke yeah. Portuguese, Steve. <laughs> Evan's like boner note. We're <laughs> a classy bunch. You totally effed up the Chinese last week. No, I didn't. <laughs> didn't you get that email? I got I got feedback from someone. Did <laughs> feedback. <laughs> is that what you call that? Feedback. <laughs> Angry. Got, yeah. So the emphasis on one of the syllables was off a little. So I so I said you know. Throw me in prison instead of good evening in Chinese. So what's the big thing? <laughs> Throw me in prison. <laughs> All right, Evan, tell us about this day in skepticism. This day in skepticism. Well, do you know what today is? Today that you're listening to this, most likely, is June 18th. And June 18th is International Panic Day. Evan, don't they want you to not panic? Well, that's a good question, Jay. Um, no one really knows where the day originated, um, but some people take it as a day in which everyone can just kind of freak out about whatever it is that keeps them up at night. Or what do you mean? no one knows uh, where it originated. Well, that's what it the just exists. Told me. <laughs> what a stupid holiday to just exist. <laughs> it does. It does just exist. Right. But it does, you know, what are you going to do? Don't panic, Rebecca. Okay. Don't I'm kind panic. of panicking about this. Don't panic, right? And where have we heard don't panic before? It's on the cover of some book. Uh, mm-hmm. I um, um, called the, the something Skeptic's guide. guide to the something or other. Mm-hmm. Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I've heard of that. Who played the voice of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy in the film? Do you remember? Stephen Fry? Stephen Fry. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's what I just said. <laughs> oh, yeah. Jeez. Yeah. Well done, Rebecca. Is, is, is this thing on? <laughs> God. Ah, that movie was disappointing. Should I? Maybe I should watch it a second time now that I know what to expect. I had high hopes for it. Mm. Well, how could you not? I mean, you know, it's Hitchhiker's Guide. Yeah, right. Exactly. Doesn't the Hitchhiker's Guide itself, the actual guide, remind you of what an iPad kind of is today? If you take a look at it, kind yeah. of this thin yeah. little notebook thing, and you kind of have all these buttons. And Yeah, I always kind of pictured it smaller than an iPad and a little bit thicker. Arthur C. Clarke said, Douglas Adams' use of don't panic was perhaps the best advice that could be given to humanity. What do you think of that? Yeah, panic is not generally a very adaptive approach. But it can be fun to look at. Here you go, guys. Listen, Have a listen to this one. So, Professor, would you say it's time for everyone to panic? Yes, I would, Kent. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, those voices are awesome. So, happy International Panic Day, everyone. Thank you, However Evan. you choose to celebrate it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, Evan, you're also going to tell us about the latest two new elements to join the hallowed periodic table. That's right, Steve. There were two new elements officially added to the periodic table this month. I'm going to have to update my shower curtain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Draw them in. It's the best shower curtain I've ever heard of, by the way. <laughs> the first one is called Evanonium. <laughs> if only. <laughs> if only in the second. If only in them. The elements were recognized by an international committee of chemists and physicists, and they're called elements 114 and 116, at least for now, until the permanent names and symbols 
become chosen at, at a later date. The elements were discovered years ago. Um, the official recognition, though, was just announced last week. The experiments were done in 2004 and 2006, respectively. So it takes a long time for new elements to make their way officially onto the, uh, onto the chart. Right. They did have temporary designations, though. They can't be named until they're official. But there, a lot see. of the elements have designations as to like as placeholders. These were yeah, they were kind of goofy. Unon quadium and unon hexium. Yep. Well, quad is four and hex is six, so fourteen, sixteen. I liked in the in one of the articles I read, they talked about how difficult it actually is to, to create these new elements, and they're talking about you know running experiments over the course of I think about a month and uh, producing about a billion billion collisions. And after all that, you may get one or two indications that, that something interesting uh, might have been created. So it, it's a tremendous amount of work. And it lasts for a second. You know, mm-hmm. some of these elements will last for a second. Like, so it's not like you could, you could pull it out of your pocket and say, look at this new element I, no. I discovered. It's like, no. It's like, look at, look at this thousand sheets of paper. And in, in, within <laughs> this data, you, there's two new elements that are indicated. Check it out. Bob, apparent. Apparently, these elements are, occur for such a brief period of time, you're not even really sure that they can classify them as either a solid or a gas or a liquid at oh, wow. temperature. Mm. They, they are, they're in the undefined category, and there are other, some of the other elements prior to them are also fall under that category just because they're not around that long. Is the idea, though, that they may exist somewhere, or is this a purely human, human-made reaction? They're purely artificial. They do not exist in nature. Mm. In fact, these two new elements were made by smashing calcium ions into atoms of plutonium uh, and curium. What does it tell us about the universe, though? I mean, if, if it's something that we made ourselves, I mean, what do we learn from it? I think it's just good to know what, uh, what combinations work, which can be considered elements. And the thing is, though, that everyone's thinking about, I think, is that uh, the hope is that we're approaching... Uh, what's called this island of stability, I think, where where we may be able to create atoms that can last for a long time. And if we ever reach this this so-called island of, of stability, that who knows what kind of novel properties uh, could be made from material made out of these elements. So that's I think that's one of the big hopes. But I think we even, will reach that. Even if we do reach an island of stability somewhere in the in the upper teens or one twenties. I don't think it's going to it's going to be a stable element. I don't think anyone's thinking that. It's more that we just part of it is just the race to name these new elements, you know, to get somebody's name on the periodic well, table. But it's also just just understanding the dynamics of nuclear physics of how neutrons and protons and electrons interact with each other and you know, if there if we do discover an island of stability, it tells us something about the structure of of nuclei. And the interactions there, but yeah, the, the, the purpose is not to come out of this with, you know, unobtainium or something that's you know we could actually build <laughs> stuff out of. <laughs> Although, but who knows? That that's always that's always possible. And that's the impression I got with the, with the whole island of stability. That yeah, that was something that could potentially you know if if it lasts for an hour, that would be great. Then we could learn a lot more about it. But if it if it's actually very stable, then that would be pretty amazing. But then you, it's, Steve, it's funny you mentioned the whole uh, naming it. Uh, one thing that I found very disconcerting in some of these articles, they were talking about uh, corporate, na- you know, selling oh, corporate yeah. naming rights. Oh, and that, no. is, that was horrific. Can you imagine? Yeah, I was actually going to make a joke about that earlier, and then I realized, no, that could actually happen. Yeah. Coca-Colium. Yeah. Pepsium, Viagram. 
Um, yeah. It's really, uh, it's really scary that uh, Home Depot. Um, can you imagine <laughs> though? You, you know, you discover this, and you get, you know, you get. Of course, you get recognition because you discovered an album. Right. Then this company's like, here, here's twenty million dollars. Let us name it. Like, oh shit! I would like to think that yeah. I just flip them off and say I don't think so. But that hasn't happened. A lot of dollars. That hasn't happened yet, and I, I, I don't think I, it, would, I would be. Surprised. I don't think it's going to. I hope not. I hope not. And I don't think there's going to be that many chances over the years. It's not going to be. Uh, something that's going to be common. Uh, guys, I got to mention uh, somebody posted on my wall something that's kind of apropos. Uh, Alvaro Ibanez has said to me, he goes, if I ever discover an element, I'll name it Nanovellum in honor of Bob and because it sounds cool. <laughs> Nanovellum. Yeah, yeah I, had to, I had to say that one. So you got that going for you. <laughs> which, is, which is nice. <laughs> <laughs> so when right. you're decaying in the ground. <laughs> All right, let's go on. The decline effect was in the news again a few weeks ago. You guys familiar with this concept of the decline effect? But the I am since, since reading your blogs and your prior blogs about it, Steve, yeah, which were yeah. very, very it's good. It's interesting. So the, the notion is that effects in scientific research tend to decline over time. The term was first applied to psi research, to ESP, because of the notorious history of ESP research where when researchers develop a, a new paradigm, a new way to demonstrate a psi effect, their initial effect sizes are large. But then as uh, scrutiny is paid to their methods and the methods are refined and, uh, and improved, the, the effect size declines until it eventually disappears and vanishes altogether. That sounds exactly like studying uh, pseudoscience. Well, yeah, that's, that's exactly that's right. So, but what's interesting is that the decline effect is not unique to pseudoscience or to psi research. It exists in science in general. That uh, initial effect sizes, well, whether it's the clinical effect of a drug or any phenomenon that's being measured, also tends to decline over time, although they don't always vanish to zero. They often will then stabilize at a smaller effect than what was initially described. The question is, what's the cause of the decline effect? And there are two main categories of, of causes that you could think about. One is, which I personally think is the only category that, that is causing the decline effect, is that it's an artifact of research and publication. In other words, when researchers first discover a phenomenon – there's multiple forces in effect that would make it that would exaggerate the size of the phenomenon. First, early research tends to be less well controlled for many reasons, partly because it's preliminary. So you're going to do smaller, less well controlled trials. You're just trying to see is there something here. Uh, and therefore, uh, the less well rigorously controlled a clinical trial is or any kind of research study, the larger an effect of a, of a researcher bias is going to have, right? So, you know, researchers are t generally biased towards finding something interesting, and and it's clearly been clearly established that when you have, say, a poorly controlled study, the outcome is not random. It's actually hugely biased towards the positive, towards what the researcher wants to, to find. In addition, there's also publication bias. In order to get a paper into the peer-reviewed literature, you want an impressive effect. You know? So perhaps smaller effect sizes 
are harder to publish. Or researchers are less likely to really push publication if the effect size is modest. But if it's really impressive, they're more likely to push for it, editors are more likely to publish it, and therefore the initial publications will tend to be bigger. Then when once the phenomenon is out there and people think, hey, this could be real, then papers that are either negative or show a smaller effect size are more interesting and relevant because it's now contradicting previously published results. So, and honestly, I think that's it. That's really all you need. And there may be other you know, artifacts as well, but that's really all you need in order to explain why there would be this decline effect in general and the, most dramatically for things which don't really exist like ESP, right? Steve, I would argue that the decline effect is the process of science refining itself. Yeah, yeah. I think it's just how science works itself out. Yeah, absolutely. If there wasn't a decline effect, that would mean that we're not refining our data and not moving towards more accurate statements. Right, but it also it's the bias. Remember, because if it was just less accurate to more accurate, it could go in either direction. But it always seems to get smaller. And I think that's a reflection of the, the researcher bias and... Also, data mining, you know, you notice an effect in the data if it's big, and then you, you publish that. Look at this big effect, but then that data was, was data mined and therefore biased towards there being a pattern that you notice. And then when you look at fresh data, it may not be real or it may be much more modest. Um, so there's lots of things going on that would make, that would make it go in that direction from big initially to, to smaller later on. It's not just that the data is getting more precise. If all, if all research were to be published equally, Steve, yeah. would that eliminate the decline effect? It would eliminate the publication bias component the publication bias of, of it, decline right. effect. But it wouldn't eliminate the bias inherent in scientists themselves. And I think that's what Steve is saying. Correct me if I'm wrong, but that is most – the most probable cause for what's happening here is just that they're looking for an effect and so they find it. Yeah, well, I, yeah, I think there's data mining, there's con there's researcher bias and there's publication bias. Now there's a this is all coming up because a, a researcher named Jonathan Schooler wrote an article about this in Nature News. Not natural news. Somebody made that mistake on my blog. Whoa. Nat oh. Natural news is that, is that you know, crank site by the health ranger. Nature news is actually part of the Nature Publishing Group. It's a perfectly legitimate outlet. He published uh, an article in Nature News about the decline effect, and Schooler was writing primarily about the fact that if we register all studies – and and they get all get published online. They don't have to make their way into some prestigious print journal. But if they're all there, then that would at least eliminate the the publication bias element of the decline effect. And he makes a good point in that while we can say generally what the probable components are of the decline effect, no one's measured them because you would need to have access to all the unpublished data to know what what a component that's playing. So he's saying we would we, we the literature needs this. We need in order to understand the literature, the, the the evidence, we need to have this thorough registry of all studies and eliminate this publication bias that is distorting the data that's getting out there. And I totally agree with that. However, he also threw in this paragraph, which again, to be fair, was not the focus of his article, but he did say this. He wrote 
Perhaps, just as the act of observation has been suggested to affect quantum measurements, scientific observation could subtly change some scientific effects. Although the laws of reality are usually understood to be immutable, some physicists, including Paul Davies, director of the Beyond Center for Fundamental Concepts in Science at Arizona State University in Tempe, have observed that this should be considered an assumption, not a foregone conclusion. So he's saying... The other thing, not that it's an artifact of the way research is done and published, but that it's a real effect law of the universe. Oops. Which is, he's saying not that it is, but that we don't know that it isn't. You know, we can't assume that it isn't a real effect, that the laws of nature don't subtly change as we try to observe them. Uh, which, is that kind of a relativistic kind of statement, right? It's, it's a crazy, I, I think, kind of statement. It's <laughs> yeah. also it's what the Those ESP really guys have been saying to, as their special pleading, get out of free jail free card, right? They're saying, but the decline yeah. effect's not our fault. It's real. It's a real effect of nature. These psi effects actually go away the more we try to look at them. It's something about psi. But that doesn't work in chemistry experiments and other things. But Schooler is saying it does. He's saying, well, not that it does, but he's saying, how do we know that this isn't just a property of the universe, that the more we try to look at and zero in on something, that it makes it shrink, the effect size shrink inside. Yeah, and maybe the LHC was going back in time to stop itself from going online. It's really tough to tell, isn't it? Steve, we're like dancing around this thing, but it's ridiculous. Yeah, you know, I'm not, I don't think we were dancing yeah, around I think, it. I'm not trying to dance around it. He's <laughs> we saying pretty clear. the laws of reality may not be immutable. I think that what a huge leap to take, especially from <laughs> the decline yeah, effect. Right. The decline effect, we have these perfectly reasonable explanations for it in, you know, in, that I just went over. Let's not get crazy and start talking about the laws <laughs> of reality. And, Too late. Until, mm-hmm. you know, we, maybe if when we exquisitely measured these effects, there was still something there. Although I don't know how you could measure researcher bias. You know, that's tricky. I'm sure there's some statistical thing you could do to sort of estimate its role. But, I mean, I don't know how you could measure it so precisely that you could say yeah. there's a real effect left over that we have to account for. But anyway, we're not even there. Yeah. Maybe they could do something like the pain scale, 1 to 10, with the happy faces to the sad faces, <laughs> Steve, and do a similar thing with, with the researcher bias. Steve, I, you know, when you think about the decline effect, I think that we have things that we're, we're becoming more clear on, and, and some things disappear because the effect was initially thought to be much greater, and some things become more focused, and we have a, a stronger and more keen understanding of what they are and how they work. And I wouldn't say that's that's the decline effect. I would say that... That's the uh, process of, of like filling in all the gaps. Filling yeah, in. it depends on what kind of thing you're researching. The more fuzzy it is, I think the more of a decline effect there's going to be. Let's Absolutely. take, for example, the effect of antidepressant medication on depression. There is this generally observed effect in the literature that antidepressants work a lot better based on their initial studies than when they are later studied. The joke is, you know, you, you better hurry up and use that drug before it stops working. But, but, but everyone knows that it's an artifact of the literature. They don't literally stop working. It's just that, you know, you have to be uh, appropriately skeptical of initial studies, you know. And we know that there is researcher bias and funder bias 
meaning that when pharmaceutical companies fund a study of their own drugs, they're much more likely to be positive than when they're independently funded. We can assume the, true, the same is true of everything, of supplements, of pe- people studying their pet theories, of whatever. That's just generic researcher bias uh, that's creeping in there. Um, I know Mark Chrislip said that his rule of thumb is that drugs are probably about half as effective as they appear to be in the initial research that gets them through the FDA. Which is probably not a bad rule of thumb, but because uh, there's also subtleties in how the research is designed. And that's something that I didn't even mention, but I would add to the list. Because uh, there are lots of choices that you make along the way as to how to design a study. It's not always obvious or straightforward. For example... Your inclusion and exclusion criteria, what, what people are you going to study the drug on? Now, there are, there are some common sense things that we do. We don't want to study a drug on pregnant women, you know, because that's a variable that, that we don't want in there. And plus, we don't want to fi- figure out in a, in a clinical trial on humans that it causes mutations, you know, <laughs> developmental problems in kids. Uh, and we don't want people to have too many other coexisting conditions and or to be on certain other kinds of drugs that may interfere with our ability to measure the effectiveness of the drug. But also the outcome measures. You know, the, We choose the outcome measures that have the best chance of looking positive. And you know, they may do some preliminary testing where they look at four or five different outcome measures. Then they pick the one that looks really good, and they use that in their big trial. So there's lots of subtle ways to, to, to tweak a trial so that it looks totally good on paper, but the process was all geared towards exaggerating the positive effect of the study. And then when it gets used in the real world on patients with every kind of disorder and other drugs and, you know, and, and more uh, out, you know, real-world outcome measures are being used, you can't expect that in the pristine and actually biased context of the clinical trial, that the effect size is going to be the same. We know that. And that's actually the legitimate role of pragmatic studies. Once you take a treatment that's been proven to be efficacious, you then look at its real-world application because the, you know, the efficacy trials are, are kind of contrived and artificial. They're, they're that way so they can control for variables, but the price you pay is they're not real-world applications. Then you look at the real-world application. Of course, the abuse that we're now seeing from the CAM proponents is that they're bypassing efficacy trials and doing pragmatic studies, which are generally unblinded, and they're treating them as efficacy trials. That's, that's an abuse of the research as well. So the, these things are all playing a role in the decline effect, and again, it just – gets you back to the notion that starting to speculate about the laws of reality not being immutable strikes me as being kind of crazy. But that's just you. Yeah, right? but that's just me, yeah. <laughs> yeah <laughs> I think that's, you know, when you talk to – the thing is what's really interesting, when, when I talk to my colleagues not in the context of complementary alternative medicine, that's what everybody thinks, right? This is just – we all understand the strengths and weaknesses of different types of research, and basically everyone's appropriately skeptical, right? But then in CAM world, it's like all bets are off. It's bizarre world of research and evidence and logic. It really is. It's totally insane. It's amazing how it all reduces to zero, though, right? Hello? <laughs> Clue there. Oh, yeah, like in psi yes. research and stuff? Yeah, just Yes. Absolutely. Yeah, Steve, I mean, anybody that says anything and that, that and that their conclusion is the laws of reality are mutable. <laughs> yeah, you could pretty rule, yeah. rule of thumb kids, rule of thumb. Yeah, they're crazy. And you're you're pretty safe. 
I think I, I always compare Ockham has something to say about that. Yeah, I always compare everything to a jet engine. Is a jet engine okay. like functioning Everything? less as time goes by? No, Je- a jet engine is a perfect example of science totally kicking ass. Okay, Jay, come yeah. on. Well, if you yeah. don't maintain no, no, it, it'll it's, change it's over time. Oh <laughs> well, yeah, it's a, it's a good example of something very concrete. You don't have to believe in the jet engine in order for it to work. Yeah, it doesn't. You know, suddenly the principles don't stop working over time. You, you, you don't need some special ability to see that it works. Yeah, it's, it's, it's yeah. it works. It just it yep. just works, yeah. And the Earth isn't going to be a cube tomorrow, <laughs> right? Exactly. <laughs> All right, Jay, tell us about the uh, the guy who developed Zycam. He's oh, you mean Charles? Charles. I say Charles Hensley. No. Stop it, people. He's the inventor of the zinc-based Zycam. And uh, a lot of people have heard about this product, and and a lot of people have used this product. This guy's made quite a bit of money selling Zycam. Uh, it's a popular over-the-counter cold medicine, and he's been recently arrested in Los Angeles for some very interesting shenanigans. Check this out. He, shenanigans. He's being arrested for illegally importing and distributing uh, another one of his products called Vira 38. Um, he claims that it's a prevention and treatment of the bird flu, and he was basically selling this. He was importing it from Hong Kong, and he was selling it and he did not have any FDA approval whatsoever on the on the medication. So the federal grand jury handed down a 12-count indictment against Hensley. Here's a few interesting details about the product. He started importing this roughly after the 2005 bird flu scare, and he tried to market it in Hong Kong before that, and it didn't work. He didn't have any sales, but he started importing it, in the United States and distributing it to two states in the United States and the sales started to, to percolate and his business was taking off. And he has a company called PRB Pharmaceuticals and their original claims about Vira 38 was that it was highly effective against the flu and it can be used as a flu medication. It it showed a to inhibit and prevent the infection of the bird flu virus H5N1 and type A human influenza in vitro. Uh, he said that human clinical research shows virus 38 reduces the duration of influenza illness by 78%. He said one of the antiviral components is V38AMF-1 which has been shown to in which has been shown to inhabit infections from type A influenza, SARS virus, avian influenza virus, Staphylococcus. <laughs> Staphylococcus. From Sesame Street. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love that I word. Totally that word is away. freaking awesome. I just want to tattoo that word to my face. Um, streptococcus, pneumoniae, two bacteria, <laughs> primarily responsible for secondary infection seen in influenza. So it's good for bacteria and viruses. That's right. Cool. Exceptionally. Uh, Vira 38 is a favorite among the Hong Kong doctors for the prevention and treatment of influenza, so the packaging said. Vira 38 is currently used in Hong Kong to protect the, the live poultry market workers against bird flu. And the last but not my least favorite, Vira 38 was used by the major SARS hospital pr- to protect frontline doctors and nurses against SARS during the SARS outbreak in 2003. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, everything you just heard is complete and total bullshit. All of those facts were made up. The current indictment alleges that Vira 38 was never approved by the FDA. He was illegally uh, importing it from Hong Kong, distributing it in the United States. He was dispensing it 
um, as a drug without a prescription, and he could face up to a maximum sentence of 28 years in a federal prison. Now, Hensley's lawyer said recently that Vira 38 is made from, and I quote, four teas you can find in any health food store. And that Hensley was going to plead not guilty to the charges, and and he later commented that no one was harmed, and the lawyer asked, is this really worthy of a federal prosecution? Absolutely. Yes, Mr. Lawyer, yes, it is indeed. Mm. You would know that if you paid attention in law school and didn't think about how you were going to help scumbags. Uh, He knows it. Lawyers don't (laughs) say things because they actually believe them. Now, here's where (laughs) the irony comes in, and this this is my favorite part of the story. Without the labeling that they had on their package, they could have legally sold Vira 38 as a homeopathic supplement. Um, so the problem was that he claimed that it treats disease. And you can't decide to take it upon yourself to say that anything treats any serious disease, particularly things like the bird flu. Yeah. So re- remember, to put this into context, Zycam was sold as a homeopathic remedy. And it turns out it wasn't, and it ended up making some people lose their sense of smell. That's right. It had, it had actual active amounts of zinc oxide in it, which was enough in some cases to cause anosmia, or loss, permanent loss of smell. So this, is, this guy, in my opinion, is a modern snake oil salesman. He's a patent medicine huckster. He's working the system, bypassing the regulation by you know, selling something that's not homeopathic as if it is homeopathic because then you can sell it without any regulation. In this case, he just, he just stepped over the line and um, made disease claims, which you're not allowed to do because that that's how the FDA defines what a drug is. It's something you make disease claims for or something that's already registered as a drug. But if, you, if you're trying to put something new on the market – which, in my opinion, is kind of crazy. I mean, a drug should be a drug and a supplement a supplement and, you know, water, water. But it, they're regulated based mainly on the kinds of claims you make for them. And, and the laws are crafted so that hucksters like him can, you know, can, can flourish and he still managed to screw up. He's, he's just like another Kevin Trudeau, the guy who did, you know, Things they don't want you to know about, yeah. weight loss secrets and yeah. things like that, where, you know, he's obviously spent a great deal of time trying to figure out how to bypass those, get, get through those loopholes, you know, but luckily he's not doing a very good job of it. Yeah, with the right. list of um, things that he he said that the, the drugs do and where they're used and all that, it's crystal clear to me that people sat in a room and, and came up with these ideas. Once again, yeah. you know, the scumbag boardroom, you know, what are we going to say? You know, what's going to help our sales? <laughs> Jay, were they actually twisting their, their handlebar mustache when they were saying? <laughs> they have and, to and be, doing, Steve. And, as soon as you become a, a the, villain, you, the pop, that, that twisty you know, mustache appears on your face, man. I mean, of course we all know that. Right. What about the uh, fingertip pyramid of evil contemplation? I love that. <laughs> but you, Evan, you, you have to be it. spinning around in your red leather chair as you're doing it. You know, like you're looking out the window. Or you have to have <laughs> a feline on your lap. That's right. That's Gosh. the only for the high. Or m- high couple it. Scumbag. You'd have to couple that with the the evil mwahaha laugh. Or or optional now is excellent. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> <laughs> God. There you have it. All right. Good. Well done, Jay. Thank you. All right, Bob, tell us about living lasers. Well, just when you thought lasers couldn't get any damn cooler, the next, or dangerous. The next, the next potentially wicked type of laser may be a biolaser. Researchers have tweaked biological cells in such a way that they can actually emit monochromatic, coherent light. 
amplified beams of light in which all photons are pretty much the same wavelength and in phase. In other words, laser light. How cool is that? That's pretty amazing. It reminds me, I don't know if you guys ever watched Guyver. I did. Uh, it's an anime series that has, that deals with a lot of bioweapons, including lasers. Oh, um, I thought you were Giver, talking about MacGyver. Yeah. No, <laughs> no, no, yeah, that's Giver. makes planes out of matchsticks. No. He made lasers out of his own cells. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> He's cool. And he got the girl, too. So, Steve, Jay, you guys might remember this. This also immediately reminded me of Alan Dean Foster's book, Sentenced to Prism. Remember uh, that? Oh, yeah. yeah. But um, it was about uh, somebody that goes to a planet called Prism that evolved this kind of weird combination of uh, conventional carbon-based life and silicon-based life, including these crystal organisms that could, that could somehow biologically produce these deadly laser beams when they were exposed to the sun. Yeah, obviously, I thought, really cool book. Check it out if, you, if you're into that, that kind of stuff. Bob, do you remember but, um, when I was with Michael Whalen and I met him? We were having lunch. I didn't even know who he was. Oh, my God. And then Michael said, hey, remember in, in Sentence to Prism, which I had just finished like three weeks ago because Bob said read the book? Yeah. And then, and then I'm like, well, and then I, I put it together. And I'm like, that's Alan Dean Foster. I, was, I couldn't believe it. Anyway, very cool. Oh. Uh, it was really cool, guys. I bet. Did you do the fanboy thing? I have to admit, I did come back in, and I'm like, dude, I just finished your book. I didn't even know it was you, and I loved it, and I started asking him all sorts of questions, and he totally didn't want to talk about it. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh. oh, my God. Oh, my God. Sucks. <laughs> yeah. So, all right, back, back to reality. So we've got um, uh, Syokyun Yun is an optical physicist uh, at Harvard Medical what, School. What'd you call me? <laughs> and uh, he, he's, he's, one of the, he's one of the main guys behind this. He developed this living laser, they're calling it, which is pretty cool, with his colleague Malte Gather. So how do they pull this off? Well, you need to know th- th- there's a few key components that, that you need to have a laser. Light. Huh? <laughs> light? No. no. You don't need light. You don't need light to have a laser. Sure you, you need laser. No, that, that's what it produces. You could have a laser that's not producing light. You, so you need Ooh, a lasing material. This is the material that amplifies the light, and it's called the gain medium. Wait, it's amplifying so, the what? Yeah, amplifying <laughs> the light. So you need light. <laughs> yeah, you do need light. It's a light amplification SAR. It's a, a, it's a, I'm talking about the physical components that you need. You don't need light to create a laser. That's what it makes. Hello? Are you, are you saying that light isn't physical? Uh, oh, boy. <laughs> it's, not, it's, not part, it's not part of the hardware. So I'm talking hardware, people. So... Splitting hairs. Go ahead. Um, so what the gain medium does is it, the key thing you need here is, is what's called a population inversion. You're, you, know, you introduce energy into the system and you have electrons Light going. Um, <laughs> doesn't have to be. doesn't have to be. You, got, you create an inversion. <laughs> what you want to do is you want to move the electrons from their ground state to an excited state. Yeah. Um, and you want to have a lot of them. Mm-hmm. You want a lot of them in, in this excited state. And then when they go back down to the ground state, they, they, emit, they emit photons that are – the, the main components of the laser light. So that's so this is what the lasing material, this is what the gain medium does. You want this material, and it could be really anything. It could be even a solid, a liquid, a gas, even a plasma. Typically, you'll find examples that are crystals or semiconductors or purified gases. You've heard of ruby lasers? Yeah. There, there you go. Oh, so, yeah. Um, so that, that's, and slippers, that's, too. That's one, yeah. So that's one of the key components is this gain medium. Um, but these, these are all synthetic materials. Uh, but now we have, apparently, we've got this new different class of gain media that's been created and it's biological and in this specific case it's proteins that the researchers engineered human embryonic kidney cells to produce what's called gfp or green fluorescent protein 
Um, and this is the substance that makes that makes jellies bioluminescent. So they 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 tweak these cells to to produce a lot of these fluorescent proteins, and that's the key lasing material for this biological laser. Now, the other key component that you need for a laser is a way to reflect the light that has already been amplified in the gain medium back and forth to amplify it even more. And, and typically what you have here is you've got a mirror, you've got two mirrors on either side, but one of them is partially re reflective. So you've, you've got this, this energy, you've got these uh, photons coursing back and forth, bouncing off the reflective surfaces back through the gain medium so that they get, so that more photons and more photons are created. And eventually you reach a point where there's so much energy that it can go through one of the, one of the uh, reflective, one of the mirrors because it's partially reflective. The other one is, is a regular mirror. One of them is usually partially reflective. So at some point when there's enough energy created, it could go, it goes right through it and bam, there's your laser beam that, that's being created. Now, the, what the researchers did for this is they created a really tiny, optical cavity and put one cell, this one uh, kidney cell inside it that had the proteins. Liver cell. Li oh, sorry. Yeah, liver cell inside it. Now, th this micro cavity had two mirrors. has two mirrors on opposite sides uh, that are like 20 millionths of a meter apart. I mean, there's, this is really, really tiny. And then finally, you need a way to get energy into the system to start the process. And this is called laser pumping. Um, in this case, the researchers made some kind of specialized microscope that could, that could pump light in, into, into the cell uh, to, to actually get this whole process started. So then when you put all this together, you got the cell with the uh, fluorescent proteins, you got the uh, reflecting optical cavity, and you've got, and you pump the system with light. The, with the light, yeah. Is, you got to pump the light in there to make it work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. to make it See, work. <laughs> Come on, this is semantic yeah. bullshit. So they, ended, they, cavity, they ended up with this beautiful green, visibly green laser light. Uh, now, it was obviously, this was weak laser light. I mean, they're not creating this super powerful thing right, out, right off the bat, but they created this weak laser light when compared to conventional lasers, but it was about 10 times brighter than, than any natural jelly fluorescence. So clearly, this is, this is a really cool first step. So then the next question should be kind of, well, all right, cool. What the hell can they do with this? Yeah, that's always the part where I think these re Good. Re reports go off the rails. Well, I have here in my notes here, nothing at all. There's no conceivable applications for this. So, well, they were I'm talking done. about no. they were talking about imaging <laughs> tissue. No, this I think yeah. <laughs> it goes off the rails because that because that's where speculation comes in. I mean, yeah, it's, I know, yeah, I it's know. purely speculative. So yeah, it's going to go off the rails a little that, bit. Yeah. But it's it's, right. it's often the the most the most fun part. So this new branch of laser tech could could potentially be a boon for disease diagnosis, intracellular sensing, imaging, like Steve you mentioned. Of course, there's there's also the potential. Uh, uh, for the obvious sci-fi application where you have a doctor turning on a laser within a cell to attack to attack other cells, uh, hopefully other diseased cells. Uh, so that's always the option as well. Right? Um, hopefully. Another way to look at this is that it could be used to get light-encoded information into and out of the body. You may have read a lot of stuff, a lot of science news about biologists using cells that fluoresce in test tubes. You've, I'm sure you've seen hundreds of pictures of this, of these, these cool green or blue or red glowing cells that they're, that they're studying. And they, they use this to study cell biology, but typically when you see these pictures, it's within a test tube. And because getting this light to pass through a human body is obviously pretty tough because it, the tissue just kind of diffuses the light and, you don't, and nothing comes out. So um, what they're talking about here is potentially, you know, imagine a hybrid implantable device that's made up of living and non-living matter that could that could beam out this information, so you can get yeah. information yeah. to like it and bear. out of it, <laughs> right? <laughs> or a, or a Teletubby. I, I you was could make a Teletubby. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So um, so 
the big picture here is they're, they're talking about bringing computation and optical communication into the realm of biotechnology. And television. <laughs> Thank you, Winky. <laughs> I predict that if it does have an application, it'll be none of the above. It'll be something no one's thought of yet. Could be. Bob, I love Could how be. you talk about these new technologies and new sciences and stuff. Yeah. And hopefully it all happens within the span of your life, basically. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> of course, because I don't care what happens after I'm dead. Yeah. Right, exactly. Well, like, boy, this would be great if this happened 100 years from now. Because Bob's not a researcher. If this were Bob's research, he would say, and I think we could make this work with some really positive applications within the next funding cycle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey, Rebecca, are you careful about effect. this research? What? If we couple this with some genetic engineering on existing animals, we can make unicorns oh. that fart rainbows. We could. We could, yeah. yeah. Or, shark, or sharks with lasers. The possibilities are endless. Absolutely. Yeah, not attached to their heads, Evan. A part of their head. Yes. Mm. Their, their heads oh, will absolutely. be a laser. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. One-up Dr. Evil, ha mm-hmm. Well, Rebecca, tell us about the latest useless techno gadget from Japan. Yeah, speaking of uh, organisms with interesting characteristics, (laughs) there is a Japanese company that has recently shown, not not for sale yet, but they've shown this uh, set of cat ears that people can wear. And what they Uh say is that the ears use brain waves in order to... In order to move the ears, and some some articles, of course, reported on this as the ears displaying your emotions, things like that. So the ears can perk up if you are concentrating hard, <laughs> and they will flop down if you're feeling, quote unquote, rejected. So it's adorable, um, and it's technological, and so of course it's it is it is in fact Japanese. My my friend and fellow skeptic writer, Amy, uh, Surly Amy, actually emailed the company a while back to ask if they were selling them at all. And they responded very politely and said, no, not yet. I guess they're overwhelmed right now with feedback. Yeah. And they said, I guess all their they, ears are drooping down there. <laughs> well, yeah, ours are though, because we can't buy them yet. But um, they said that they hope to have them available for sale at the end of this year. But yeah it has been a, you know probably a bit over oh, the the reporting was a bit overly enthusiastic i think because they were saying things like the ears will convey your emotions which they're mood I don't ears think is quite right yeah mood ears yeah they convey your emotions in the same way that a mood ring conveys your emotions yeah. which is n- not, not at, at all. all yeah but uh <laughs> but they do but it turns funny colors they they're like um they they remind me of the there there's a there's like a brain game you can get that's usually advertised in Sky Mall. That's the only place I've yeah. actually seen this with a, a tiny plastic ball. And the idea is that you you put on this headset and then you focus really hard until you can move the tiny ball, like it, it floats up, and then you can push it through a hoop. Well, guys, um, it's not really that crazy that well that instrument can read read activity in the brain. It's just I don't think that the the, tech, the technology is cheap enough to put it into kids' toys and, and stuff like this, right? Well, it is actually um, because this is a toy that you can purchase. That I mean, it and it's not that it doesn't read your emotions. It just picks up on on brain waves that you generate by 
thinking by concentrating and Steve can go into this a bit more. Yes, and but, I will. But yeah, it doesn't, it's not like, oh, I'm feeling happy. And so that puts out a certain brain wave that the ears or whatever can pick up on and perk up. Now it's not quite like that. No. I mean, the, the, here's the, this is a, an entire category of pseudoscience that is very common. And, you know, Evan and I, we were at the uh, Connecticut Science Museum and they had a similar device. Yep. I was totally disappointed. You know, where you tried to yeah. move the ball to one side or the other by concentrating, uh, mm, you know, yeah. or like the game, or and you're now reading your mood. It's all BS. So there's only a f- you know a few different states that your EEG, your brainwave, is going to be in when you're when you're awake, and it depends more on whether your eyes are open or closed. If and the, then the rhythm will change if you get drowsy, and of course, then there are different sleep rhythms. But there aren't different rhythms based upon how hard you're concentrating or on your mood or anything like that. That's all nonsense. Um, and the other thing is that with these devices, the number of electrodes they're using is very little. So it, they're they're too crude even to get a good EEG. You know, which even even if you had a really like a clinical EEG, you couldn't tell somebody's mood or anything or how hard they're concentrating by their EEG, let alone these two crappy electrodes you're going to get with these cat ears. So it's essentially going to, maybe it might reflect when you're drowsy. That would be about the only thing that it could do. Right. Otherwise, it's just, a, it's just gimmicky. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the thing is, I think it's a problem that it's being oversold because I love things like that, I, like this. I love things that combine technology science and and fashion and art you know and I, i've on skeptic in the past i've highlighted some really interesting work that's been done like um i, I wrote about a, a dress that had butterflies on it that's connected and the dress itself is connected to the wearer so that the butterfly's wings flap uh every time your heart beats and uh you know and if you go on our new sister site mad art lab of course there's tons of this sort of stuff coming up all the time. So th- I, I think the ears in and of themselves are actually still really cool because they are talking about a specific type of science and they are cool looking or cute, you know, in in that sort of way that only small Japanese women can really get away with. Yeah. Um, but Yeah, the video I saw, the girl was freaking hot with those ears. Yeah, I mean, they're they're really cute and they're very, yeah. I mean, if I could get away with that, I would totally yeah. wear them. But yeah, I I think by overselling it like that, we miss an opportunity to actually talk about what the real science is behind it. Yeah. So and and I don't know. I hope that maybe a part of that is just a miscommunication because of the. I mean, if you go on their uh, Facebook page or their website, the it's all in Japanese, and so and the email that Amy got back was. Um, not perfect English, so I'm I'm thinking that maybe maybe there's a there's just a bit of a translation issue, and they haven't maybe, hired their American marketing company yet. Yeah, well, I mean, they're not. As far as I can tell, they're not a huge company. I think it's just just some people who figured out how to make these little ears, and now they're they got so much attention for it that now they're trying to produce them. Yeah. Rebecca, <laughs> did, did you think that the furries were going to jump on these? Well, of course. I think everybody will. I think they're awesome. They should make a tail that can that you know read your yeah your thoughts yeah. right. Where would that be connected to? Yeah, your arse. Why not just make the ears with this with a a switch that you could just like 
hit a button and how you wanted what the ears to do. I mean, that would be a lot. Well, because that's not as cool. Like the idea is but that it, it's but it would work. It's picking up on your own body and you know. Well, yeah, but so. it's but it's not. But it, yeah, it's not working. That's the problem. Well, yeah, it does. It does. It just doesn't work the way oh. that the American news media is reporting it. It does, in fact, you know, pick up on brain waves and change. You know, and I think that's cool. What would be better well, in terms of actually reflecting something about your mental state is to read your voice and then interpret your your mood from your inflection and your tone, and then re- yeah. and reflect that. That would probably- it could also it could also work similar to a lie detector, which, as we all know, doesn't actually detect lies all that well all the time but it does detect stress so yeah. you know it could be something that picks up on your heartbeat or your end slash or your the amount of sweat you produce and produce yeah. response that way it's like an emotional expression extender yeah yeah, yeah. cool yeah we could just tell people what the hell's going on. <laughs> well, it's like a crazy. Remember talking? Oh, yeah, remember talking don't get out of control here. Talking? We are talking about people who spend all their time on the internet. What are you, gay? Our Evans? listeners, I mean, not not. <laughs> <laughs> Talk to people. All right, let's go on. So, Steve, it's been a year since our last Audible ad, and I wanted to let you know that I still use Audible. It's a great way to get audiobooks on your smartphone. I've been listening uh, to Game of Thrones like crazy the past few months. I'm on book two now. I love it. Yeah, uh, Audible that has a great selection of science books. I recently downloaded Michael Shermer's book, The Believing Brain. You can also get The Psychopath Test by John Ronson that we talked about recently on our show. What you can do is go to www.audiblepodcast.com slash SGU and sign up for a membership and you will get a a credit for a free Audible download. So guys, get yourself some audio books and help support the SGU at the same time. We'd really appreciate it and we think that uh, you'd really enjoy Audible, so go for it. Evan, it's time for Who's That Noisy? Then I better play last week's Who's That Noisy so we can talk about it and reveal exactly what it was. And Do here it. You, here you go. So, Kabbalah is actually an ancient Judaic mysticism, and I know you hear That was a terrible recording, by the way. Mm-hmm. I, uh... Yes, it was. I apologize for that. But in a sense, it helped part kind of, the of mask. Yeah, I didn't want the cleanest possible recording. Because, hell, let's face it, in life, you're not always going to hear things as clearly as you would like to. Yeah, go with that. Good recovery. <laughs> That's a beautiful life lesson you just Thank gave. You. God. But listener Andre Costa from Brazil was the first one to guess correctly via email that that was Sarah Silverman talking about Kabbalah, and she was appropriately making fun of it during one of her funny, funny stand-up routines. So that was excellent work, Andre. Congratulations. Uh, yeah, she was making fun of Kabbalah. That's the key. Yes. She's not a believer like Madonna. That's right. And a lot of people did guess that it was actually Madonna, but that, in fact, was not the case. Although that was a decent decent enough guess. All right. You got something cleaner for this week? <laughs> <laughs> All right, folks. Here we go. This week's Who's That Noisy? My mother. Are you, are you kidding me? <laughs> Would you like Evan, come Would on. you like a hint? Do you think the audience warrant uh, should should get a hint with this one? I have no idea. 
What's all right. Go ahead. Do it. We've never done a hint before. Do a hint. Well, occasionally we do, but all right. A hint. That was not an animal. Okay, um, good. That definitely does help. That's a, that's a good hint, yes. So when right. you say animal, do you include human beings as animals? Yes, I do. So it's not a human being. If you were to cut ca- animal, mineral, animal. vegetable, you can eliminate animal from, that, Got it. from those choices. All Interesting. Right. Give it your best guess. Good luck, everyone. Right. So it's not a frog. A frog is an animal. That would be therefore. an animal, wouldn't <laughs> yes. it? Okay. Just checking. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Evan. You're welcome. We're going to do one email. This one comes from George Vulgaris from Melbourne, Australia. And George writes, Hi, guys. Love the show. Long-time listener. Despite being a skeptic, ever since I can remember, I find myself partaking in this superstitious act of knocking on wood only very occasionally and usually when an unpleasant thought involving my kids or family pops into my head. Most often this will occur when my guard is down, such as when I am drifting off to sleep, for example. I know it's stupid and irrational, but during these moments of vulnerability, I am sometimes compelled to do it. Is this just a coping mechanism to get rid of the unpleasant thought, or is there a believer buried in my subconscious trying to get out? This led me to ponder whether belief in a higher power could have a subconscious component and where these occasional lapses in rational thought would be coming from. Am I a closet believer, or is this just a learned behavior, or could it be some type of of repressed, redundant, evolutionary remnant. Wondering also if you guys have ever partaken in any superstitious activity recently. Kind regards, George. Yes, there is a believer buried in your subconscious. Inside every skeptic is a believer trying to get out. <laughs> trying to get out. I have a friend who does this exact same thing. He, he, knocks, he knocks his head when he says knock wood, and he does it on kind of a regular basis. And I asked him about it once. Where he got it from. And he said like his uncle did it when he was a boy. So he felt it was like a cultural kind of thing in his family. So he just kept doing it. He has no no particular belief that it really does anything. But it's just sort of his own personal colloquialism. And and that said, you know, if there's – things like that can just be, you know, just a weird sort of habit that you learn and get into. But if you are doing it because you feel – if, if on some gut level you you feel concern for a loved one in that and you know also on that level you somehow think that maybe that could help but then rationally you realize it can't then that's normal yeah everybody you know there's no such thing I think as a, a true pure skeptic who doesn't occasionally have feelings like that you know it's and it's yeah. not like it's not like you're burning a witch to make them go away or anything. You're just engaging in a harmless little outlet. Like, to, how yeah, it's you, a ritual. How do you know she's a witch? Yeah. Plus, look at the, what he says in his email is important, I think, is that often it's when he's drifting off to sleep, uh, when you, your defenses are really down. And it, it usually involves his kids or his family. So these two these two things that just set it up perfectly where, you know, you set up this this mental thought where there's a lot of stress and you're like just you know just knock on the wood and it kind of evaporates so you know i could kind of i could see that you know it's just some habit it's also more of a habit than anything else i think well from a neurological perspective he's in my opinion literally correct in that yes there is a little believer down deep inside your brain in the more primitive bits where the th- the things from which superstitions and emotions flow and that do highly motivate us. And then we have the rational frontal lobe parts of the brain, the hierarchically higher part of the brain, where we can't think in a more rational way about what we feel and and what we believe 
and what we do. And it is a high-energy part of the brain. And in fact, there are studies, there was just recently a study published, in fact, that showed that when you're sleep-deprived, you're more likely to give in to uh, bad food choices. Mm. Um, So... To temptation. So that explains it. Yeah, to yep. temptation. So th- it takes energy to resist temptation. And, e- and even when you know you, sh- you should or should not do something, that part of your brain that will inhibit the more primitive parts of your brain from doing what it wants to do takes concentration and energy. And if your guard is down because you're sleep-deprived or you're falling asleep, or there's also an effect where if you just made a huge effort to resist something, you're more likely to cave into the next thing. You've already sort of expended your energy resisting temptation. Now you've you Your shields ch- are low. Your shields are low. You treat yourself, you know, to it's like, oh I just did this huge thing. I'm gonna have the damn cheesecake, you know? Or whatever. Um so oh, that is so freaking cool. That explains so much to me. <laughs> <laughs> For real though, think Case about closed. it. Closed. <laughs> right. Anyway, no, now, now I just have to make sure I don't use what Steve just said as an excuse. Right. Oh well, you know, Steve just said that you know I'm tired, so therefore I can't resist all this food. <laughs> 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 but it's good to know that you know that when you're going to be vulnerable, it, and it's neurological. You do have a finite amount of of cycles in your head of energy that you can expend to do stuff. And if you've spent it on something else, or if you have less of it because you're you're, you're de- sleep deprived or you need to go to sleep, you you behave differently. You'll have less resistance. You know that's the way it is. It's it's neurological. So his email was actually quite insightful. He, he really captured the neurological essence of the interplay there. Good email. Yeah, good job, George. I think we have lots of little things like that that we do, and I'm sure that there's a ton of them we don't even recognize. Like I, everything from like the way I put my keys in my pocket in the morning when I'm leaving for work. Yeah, uh-huh. and you know rituals on on you know how I uh, go into the. I swear to God, like in the bathroom, like I have a way that <laughs> no I walk into the to bathroom. About that. That's just OCD, Jay. Yeah. Well, I have a, definitely have a shower ritual, and it's totally subconscious, but I go through the same exact process every time. Because you've done it a million freaking times in your life, you know. It's like there's no no, no surprises in store. It's not like, oh, I think I'm going to do it this way today, you know. It's just, you just do it without thinking. I don't know that I, – I wouldn't really consider ritual a, a, a sort of irrational thing to do, an irrational behavior. But I – I do often talk about this. It comes up a lot at talks for some reason that I give. Usually during Q and A, um, someone will say something along the lines of, you know, this us versus them kind of mentality. They'll speak from this idea of how we're skeptics and they are believers and, you know, never the twain shall meet. And, and I like to point out that there are tons of weird little beliefs that, you, you know, even skeptics have that, we don't really think about it on a day-to-day basis. Um, and I usually mention Bruce Hood's book, Super Sense, because he, yeah. he talks a bit about these, these sort of things. Um, and also Dan Ariely's book, Predictably Irrational. Uh, just to give you a quick example, the one, the easiest one to throw out there is the, uh, the idea that most people, if asked, will try on a sweater for, if you, if you offer them $10 to try on a sweater, they'll do it. But if you tell them that the sweater was once owned by a serial killer, a large portion of them will not do it. And that includes a large portion of skeptics, even skeptics yeah. who are right now thinking, 
well, yeah, ten dollars. It doesn't matter. I would, I would put it on. I think a lot of people still have that gut reaction. They're like, oh, oh, Charles Manson wore that sweater. Uh, yeah, you know, I don't, I, I don't have that. But you know what? I ha- I have the opposite. Where if there is an item that was used by a person I respect, then it's like, ooh, that's Darwin's microscope. You know, right? Who cares? Yeah, I, it's a, it's a, it's still a piece of, you know, of, of wood and glass or whatever. But the, the, the historicity thing is the thing that I, even though I know there's nothing really different about the molecules in that microscope, it, there is a connection to the person who used it, which I think is actually quite reasonable. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's completely irrational, though, uh, in its way, because what what we're doing is we're imbuing this inanimate object with an essence that you know really is just it's just completely in our minds, and yeah. uh, you know, on along those lines, there have been studies done that show uh, if you take uh, a child's favorite toy. And you convince them that you have a machine that will duplicate it atom for atom, you know, exactly the same way. And you offer them the duplicated item in exchange for their original item, they will not accept it. And it's because the original item has this essence that they give it that the duplicated item simply can't duplicate. But that's a little bit different, though. I mean, I, you're, that experiment that you just described is true. Again, that's from Bruce Hood's book. But the, the, you could see that as – that's only with their f- special favorite toy, not with any toy. With, with regular toys, yeah. they happily take the exact duplicate because they recognize it's exactly the same. Right. But with their special toy, they treat it as a living thing. And Agency. Uh, yeah, they think it has – they do. They treat it like a living thing. And think about it. I mean, a, a parent – should care that they get their actual child back and not just a similar-looking child. So you could see how evolutionarily we would evolve to behave that way, right? Right, and people do it, even adults do it with inanimate objects, like uh, with, say, a pocket watch that your grandfather gave you. Um, if you. If someone were to offer you the exact same pocket watch in every detail, you would probably not exchange it. You would want the original. Sentimental value. My, my final word on this point is there's nothing wrong with it. You know, be human, be happy. Don't, no, there isn't. Don't, right? yeah, don't sweat it. Yeah, it's embracing the human condition. You know, Definitely. you experience the emotional part of being human. Yeah. As long as you understand where it fits in and you don't let it control your life, you know. Well, let's go on with science or fiction. It's time for science or fiction. Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fictitious, and then I challenge my panel of, skeptic, of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. We have a theme this week. Oh, boy. The theme is Vesta. Do you guys know what Vesta is? It's a moped. That's, where, that's what I wear under my jacket. It's the opposite of Easter. <laughs> and I, can't, I can't top those. Can you use any yeah. of these, Steve? I don't know. It's, no. It may, may not. Vesta is an asteroid in the asteroid belt. Uh, NASA's Dawn Probe is on approach to Vesta and will be there this summer in July. Is it going to land on Vesta and come to Vesta? It's going to orbit it very closely. When it it takes a break, is it taking a siesta? I'll tell you more about it after 
the answer. These are the three things about Vesta. Ready? Okay. Oh, God. Item number one. Despite the fact that Vesta has no clouds or snow cover, it is the brightest object in the asteroid belt with an albedo about the same as the Earth. A libido. Item number two. About one in every 20 meteorites that fall to the Earth come from Vesta. And item number three, when it was first discovered in 1807, Vesta was thought to be a moon of its larger cousin, Ceres, which was initially designated a planet. Evan, since you uh, piped up, you get to go first. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Just because I made the crack about libido? Oh, yeah. Or was it all those horrible jokes prior to that? Well, you know. Some combination. So it's a scientific fact that Vesta has no clouds or snow cover, according to this. Uh, I, could, I think we can concede that. <laughs> it's the brightest object in the asteroid belt with an albedo about the same yeah. as Earth. <laughs> oh, yeah, of course. All right. So therefore, what makes it bright? If it's not clouds, if it's not snow, it could be... If it's metallic-y, right, it could shine very brightly depending on how much metal is perhaps in this meteorite. If I knew, I mean, about this um, object. And then the second one was one in every 20 meteorites that fall to the Earth originate from Vesta. How are they able to determine that? One in every 20 meteorites. I mean... There's a lot of meteorites bombarding the Earth constantly. How could they possibly know? And most of them, I guess, it could be a trick because do the little sand grain particles count as meteorites? I think they do. But if they burn up entirely, how could they possibly know? So I don't know about that one. And then the last one is when it was first discovered way back, over 200 years ago, was thought to be a moon of its larger cousin, which was initially designated as a planet. Um, it's Ceres is a dwarf planet by our current classifications, and Vesta was thought to be a moon of it. Yeah, I don't see why that wouldn't be the case. That that seems very reasonable, um, even though the classification of Ceres was initially partially incorrect. So the one that is making the least sense to me is about the meteorites. I don't know how they measure one in every 20 meteorites falling to the Earth, so I'm going to say that that one's fiction. Okay, Bob. All right, the first one, uh, it's got a very high albedo. Yeah, I mean, sure, why not? Um, depending on exactly its composition and how it's arranged, yeah, it could it could have a high coefficient of reflectivity. It could. I don't. I just don't know about the albedo of anything in the asteroid belt. Um, so it could be. Uh, the second one about um, one in twenty meteorites coming. Yeah, I agree with Evan. I'm not sure how the hell they could possibly. Determine it. Um, the the the, uh, the micrometeorites that that burn up. I mean, yeah, obviously they don't count because they don't fall to Earth. But still, how could they possibly determine that? I mean, are they looking at the um, the reflected light off of Vesta, trying to determine the composition? Sh- man, I don't know about that one. And, and this third one's killing me too. I mean, that doesn't make a hell of a lot of sense either. Um, Noceris is the largest the largest asteroid in the in the uh, in the asteroid belt. It's um, I think it's a hundred, it's at a hundred miles, but, um, so it's the biggest one, but there, I mean, the, the asteroids in the belt are so spread out. I, I love in the movies, they show asteroids really close together, which is really silly because, um, yeah. I mean, they would, you know, the they're all moving Falcon. in different, in different, yeah, they're <laughs> right. all moving in different directions too. So it's kind of silly because very soon after that, that 
everything would be so far apart. How did they just happen to get? What did the planet just explode? Oh, the death minutes star. before That's they right. got there. Yeah. So, um, but so yeah, if you were if you were on one asteroid in the asteroid belt, you couldn't even see the the next asteroid. This is so far. It's just so far away. Um, so I'm not sure why they would think Vesta was a moon of Ser- of Ceres. Just a little bit of observation would tell you that um, it's not in orbit around it. But then again, it, you know, it is 1807. That's going back a ways. Hubble wasn't launched yet, but still, uh, so two and three are killing me here. All right, we'll go with uh, we'll go with the one in twenty meteorites. Then. Yeah. Okay, Jay. I'll go with the meteorites. <laughs> Uh, All right. Very insightful, Jay. Uh, Rebecca? Is that what everybody's gone for so far, the meteorites? Yep. Yes. All right, then I'm going to be different. I don't know anything about Vesta. I don't know anything except for that it's it's big and important. Join Um, us. So, no, I'm I'm not going to go with the meteorites. I am going to go with the... uh, fact that it's thought to be a moon of Ceres. I know that Ceres is, in fact... Big, but I don't think they would have thought that Vesta was a moon of it. Seriousness. Okay, so you all agree that despite the fact that Vesta has no clouds or snow cover, it is the brightest object in the asteroid belt with an albedo about the same as Earth. You all think that one is science, and that one is <gasps> science. Oh, thank goodness. Hooray. All good so far. <laughs> uh, yeah, so the, that is true. Vesta is a very bright object. It's a, the albedo of Earth is about uh, 40%. You know, it reflects about 40% of the light that hits it back, and, and Vesta is about the same, and they have no idea why. Uh, so the hope is that the Dawn probe, when it gets a close look at the surface of Vesta, will we'll figure out why its albedo is so high. The Dawn Treader. Mm. That's it. So let's we'll take these in order, I guess. Mm-hmm. About one in every 20 meteorites that fall to the Earth come from Vesta. Rebecca thinks that that one is science. The rest of you, the I guys, do. think that that one is the fiction. Come and on, that science. one is <gasps> science. Oh, how did they know? <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> Good job, Rebecca. Uh, yeah, you. that thank was... You. That was a very interesting one. I, well, yeah, when I read that, I'm like, whoa, really? It wasn't so much that they knew because, you know, we could figure out pretty much, you know, from looking at the, the chemistry and everything, you know, w- w- uh, which rocks are asteroids, which ones come from the moon, which ones come from Mars. You know, we could figure that out. You're but, talking uh, about recovered stones? Yeah, recovered. Yeah, so meteorites, Evan, by definition, have to be uh, on the surface of the Earth. Yeah, they have yeah to we be don't around. know anything about the ones that weren't recovered. Yeah, if they, if they complete – well, all, the, the term meteorite – refers to something on the earth yeah, that's it why lands. i got confused it's a All meteor right. when it's in the sky it's a meteorite when it's on the ground so um, then meteorites that fall to earth is redundant uh yes. i guess so unless it Good. could be a meteorite right. that falls to the moon <laughs> okay you're still a meteorite if you hit the moon well that's a philosophical question that we must okay the meteorite. Okay. all right plate with something so <laughs> Uh, but the but one in 20 why would one in every 20 meteorites that hit the earth be from Vesta. What do you guys think? Because it's big. Because it's the it's second biggest mm-hmm. asteroid. Why aren't more coming from That's the second biggest asteroid? Ceres or the Moon or Mars? I mean, why so many from Vesta? Because uh, what could be? Is there a debris cloud from Vesta from the past Vesta. that, that yes, we just go through? I mean, that's what it's I said. Not, it's not that we're going through a debris cloud from it. It's just that Vesta got whacked. It got smacked. There's a massive crater on its south pole. And it just littered the entire solar system with debris. 
And so a lot of it falls to the earth. Hmm. You know, I don't think that we're passing through it especially. It's just that it's all, they're all over the place. I was thinking more of like debris trails from like comets that we go through causing the annual – Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's not that. It's just that it just – Yeah, I it got It got smacked and threw up a huge cloud of debris that is just now just spreading throughout the solar system and occasionally falls to the earth. Right. So that one is science. That was cool, you, I thought. Do you think, therefore, that one in 20 meteors are also derived from that cloud? Why not? I guess you could expect uh, Well, it's no, different because meteors, it's meteors different, right. are, yeah, because when we do pass through the tail of a comet or the debris yeah. cloud, we get then hundreds of or thousands probably, yeah. of yeah, meteors just from that comet. So, mm. uh, Which means that when it was first discovered in 1807, Vesta was thought to be a moon of its larger cousin Ceres, which was initially designated a planet, is fiction. Well, you know what they thought? No. I would have got it right. They actually they designated Ceres and Pallas and Vesta as planets, as well as a fourth object, Juno. So Juno, yeah, Vesta was actually the fourth uh, asteroid discovered. Ceres was the first, and the technical name of Vesta is for Vesta, fourth object discovered. Ceres was one Ceres. They were all four were designated as planets. And they thought initially that they were the remains of a destroyed planet, that the asteroid belt used to be a planet, and then it, it broke up into these four bigger objects. Not and then they started theory. to discover lots of other asteroids. You know, They realized it was a whole donut of objects, not just those four. And eventually they were downgraded to nothing, and then Ceres was upgraded recently to a dwarf planet. Vesta, although it's not a dwarf planet now – is not categorically out of the running, and it may one day, and in fact, based upon the data we collect with the Dawn probe, may get upgraded to a dwarf planet. It depends on its shape. It's like pumpkin-shaped is what they're saying. So it's a little distorted, but it's also uh, something about its um, geology, You know, if, uh, whether or not it will qualify as a dwarf planet. But it's not too small or anything to qualify. Necessarily, fascinating. Is cool? yeah. It is, yeah. Hmm. Whatever. Hmm. So, Aww, yeah, the, so the, the <laughs> Dawn <laughs> probe will get there in July. And then it's going to go into really close orbit around Vesta and take some very close pictures. It'll get to within. It'll get to within about 125 miles of the surface, which is close. Yeah, yeah. The average diameter of Vesta is only about 330 miles. So it's closer to the surface and the diameter of the uh, of the object. And then after it studies Vesta for a while, it's going to go on to Ceres. Yeah, why not? Yeah. In, in the neighborhood. Well, it's still a long way off. Oh, you know. You know, they're not near each other in, in the, the, in the uh, asteroid belt. So uh, it's going to take a couple years you know, to, get, to get over to Ceres. It's, this is the cut. first... This is the first NASA probe that's actually going to go into orbit around more than one object. Hmm. Oh, that's that is interesting. Yeah, really. It will go into orbit around Vesta, then it will go into orbit around Ceres. Yeah, because the gravitational Tricky. pull isn't so much that it can't get away from. Right, Vesta. right. That's part of it because these are small objects. Yeah, pretty cool. That is pretty cool. What's cooler is that I won yes. and you all lost. That is not nearly as cool, I assure you. Good for yes. you, Rebecca. You robbed Thank me you. of a clean sweep, Rebecca. I would like. I would probably take a bit more pride in this if I hadn't have just basically guessed. Yeah. 
<laughs> you know, it was pretty much just a crapshoot there. But We've all been I'll, there. I'll, I'll, well, I'll take this I'm one. Sure, yeah. I'm sure my analysis helped you a little bit. We've all been there. A bit, actually, yeah. Because I, when Steve first read it out, I actually thought that one and three were the most out there. So when Bob narrowed it down to two or three, I realized it must be three. That's, <laughs> that was my thinking. Some sound reasoning. That's Re- Rebecca's <laughs> razor. Yep. All right. Jay, you got a quote for us this week? This is a quote from a man named Ian Rowland, and he wrote a book. He wrote a book called The Full Facts Book of Cold Reading. Cold yeah, 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 yeah. It says here he's a writer and an entertainer that lives outside of London. That's correct. And this quote was sent in by Sariel Thrawn from Sydney, Australia. In cases where prior knowledge is available, the alternative to an open mind is not a closed mind. It is an informed mind. In such contexts, any appeal to keep an open mind is an appeal to prefer ignorance over knowledge. This is not advisable. Excellent. Mm-hmm. Wait, wait. Wait for it. <laughs> Ian Rowland! <laughs> ah. A quick announcement. We'd like yes. to send congratulations to our friends, uh, Matt Stone and Trey Parker, for winning nine Tony Awards for their awesome musical, The Book of Mormon, or Book of Mormon, I should say. By friends, wow. you mean people we had on our podcast once. Exactly. Well, one of them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, Rebecca. <laughs> hey, Rebecca, everyone thinks he's friends with them. <laughs> My dear buddies, Matt and Trey, or M&T as I call them. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to give a shout out to our good friend, uh, Jimmy Carter. <laughs> uh, I say, yo, what's up, Jimbo? Yeah. He, yo, still yo. Hates, he still hates Jews, but I love him. So, Another quick announcement. I will be in Phoenix, Arizona, Tuesday, June 21st, starting at 7 p.m. in BJ's Brew House. Uh, this is the uh, Phoenix Skeptics in the Pub. Uh, so if you are in the area, come and see me. Uh, I don't get out, out to Arizona very often. You can check out the details further at uh, meetup.com slash skeptics in Phoenix slash events. Yeah, and, uh, you know, don't forget, you know, uh, what's coming up. Uh, Tam, maybe? <laughs> the Amazing Hello. Meeting 9. Tam 9 from Outer Space. 9. 9. we got so much stuff going on there. It's going to be fun. And Skepticon in Minneapolis, June 30th to July 3rd. Oh, thanks for the invitation, Rebecca. It's going to be hot, I hear. Mm-hmm. It's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, guys, don't forget that we are we are producing a SGU24 podcast, which means that we're going to be recording a live uh, video and audio podcast that's going to be on September 23rd to 24th. And uh, we're looking forward to uh, getting to work on that right after TAM. We're going to be doing all the, the pre-production and everything. And please give us your ideas and support. Thank you. September 23rd, 8 p.m. Thank you for joining me this week, everyone. Thanks, Steve. What the hell is this? See you in two days. So long. (laughs) And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. You can also check out our other podcasts, the SGU 5x5, as well as find links to our blogs and the SGU forums. For questions, suggestions and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website. 
or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by leaving us a review on iTunes, Zoom, or your portal of choice.